Welcome, 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 everyone. Very, very grateful to have you all. Um, this is one of the most vital classes that are going on right now, and I think you'll understand why as we progress in our study together. We're talking about communion with God in the garden, but I'm going to take the word garden out and I want to broaden it just a little bit. We're going to talk about communion with God in nature. Okay, communion with God in nature, which does include the garden, but it certainly can go beyond the garden. All right. Because sometimes we have seasons in the year um, or if you're in a seventh year and you want to let your land rest or, you know, if you're doing things where maybe the garden is not active, you still need to have communion with God. <laughs> so, again, we want to broaden it from communion with God in the garden to communion with God in nature. All right. What we're going to do is have a word of prayer. And then after that, we will begin. So let's bow our heads, please. Our Father in heaven, we are very grateful for this opportunity for us to enter into this time of class where we can learn very, very important lessons as it relates to having communion with you the way Jesus did it. And I just pray that you will please grant us your Holy Spirit and, and settle these truths in our minds and help us to remember that the blessing is in the doing. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. All right. Let us go ahead and remember this. this. This is a point I want us to really remember is that when we think about Jesus, often we focus on him as the savior. And I get it. We, you know, th that, that's the highlight. You know, he's the savior of humanity. He saves us from our sins. Praise the Lord for that. But Jesus came to this earth to do something else. While he definitely comes or came to save us from our sins, he came to do something else. He came to be our example. He actually came to show us how to live. And I sure wish that many of us would study the life of Jesus in that context a lot more. And especially our youth. You know, in two months, I will be privileged to be 50 years young. And when I look at it, I'm thinking to myself, man, I, I can't go backwards. You know, it's like all I can do is go forward to that. But wow, if I knew what I know now when I was 25. Wow, if I knew what I know now when I was 15. It's like just how much drama I could have saved myself from or God could have delivered me from. And so what we're going over, please, especially the youth in this room, pay super close attention to this. Because if you put this into practice, you will truly be spared from a thousand perils. Now, when we look at the idea that Jesus is our example, what that means is that now when we study the Bible and when we study about Christ, we are not just learning what he did, but what he calls me to do and to be. Are you following that? Every time you read your Bible and you're studying about Christ, you're not just studying it in the context of what he did, but you're also studying it in the context of what I must do and most importantly, what I must be. Jesus is our example. Let's get some Bible proof for that. First John two. Let's turn our Bibles to the book of first John and we're going to chapter two and we're going to consider this idea of Christ being our example, not merely coming to this earth to save us, but also to show us how to live. So in first John chapter two and let's go ahead and have a reader since, you know, it's kind of like a class for us. So let's let's treat it like class. Let's have a reader. First John two. And verse six, who would be so kind? Whoever reads, just read it nice and loud for us, please. Go ahead. Amen. So notice that the Bible is very clear. We know that the desire of God is not merely to come to him, but to abide in him. When you come to my house and I say, welcome to my humble abode. I'm talking about where I live. Is that right? Okay. My where you abide It's the place where you live. God does not want us to be spiritual visitors. He does not want us to be spiritual guests, because one thing I know about visitors and guests, sooner or later, they got to go. Is that right? Sooner or later, they got to go, you know, but we God wants to make a permanent residence within our heart. He's not trying to be just a visitor or a guest. I understand we use these terms loosely, but God wants us to understand. I want to dwell in you and I want you to dwell in me. And this is why Jesus would say things like abide in me and I in you. That's why he would use that language, because when we come to Christ, the goal is not to visit, have a good time and eventually say, all right, Lord, thanks for all the good stuff, but I got to go back to the world. That's not what God wants. He wants us to come to him and to abide in him, to stay there. He stays in our heart. We stay uniting with his heart. If we abide in Christ, the Bible says what will happen. It says 
The way he walked is the way you'll walk. In other words, the way he lived is the way you will live. That's what the word walk means. The way he lived is the way you will live. And so there's no question that the Bible teaches that Jesus came to this world to be our example and show us how to live. Understanding this, we now can pick our favorites, right? You know, you kind of look at the life of Christ when he healed people. And we say, all right, I want to be a medical missionary. We can look at how Jesus was obviously working with his father in the carpentry shop. So now all of us want to gather into trades. Of course, we could look at Jesus and say, oh, yeah, he spent time in the garden. Now I want to be a gardener. But before all of that, there was something that made Jesus's ministry very powerful, very, very powerful. And I believe we're living in a time where we need to see more of the power of God because we're seeing a lot of the power of Satan. And I'm just being real with you as a, as a man who has four children that are basically no longer children, you know, and I see what I'm up against like never before. We brought our children up in the principles of present truth, hands down. And I want to add a word to it. I'm going to say balanced. Balanced. I, I, I hate fanaticism. I believe fanaticism is of the devil. It really is. It, it is so destructive. And so in I, and believe me when I say I've been around fanatics. I mean, I've been around some people that are if I could just speak plainly, they are weird. I mean, really strange. It's just like you believe what? Or you live this way? What? And you know, I mean, just strange. And it's amazing. There's a man who is now sleeping in the grave, I believe, awaiting the first resurrection. Uh, Richard O'Phil. OK. And Pastor Richard O'Phil said a truth that was so deep. He said, if you give somebody a pair of scissors and a Xerox machine, a copy machine, you could take the writings of Ellen White and make it say whatever you want. And there's a lot of truth to that. And I've met people that have taken just the words of inspiration and turn it into something. I'll give you one example because I don't want to dwell too much on this. But, you know, I went to a conference where they beat you up pretty bad as a man if you were wearing a belt versus suspenders. And so I was like, all right, whatever, you know, because I study dress reform very well. And I know why God spoke to the context of suspenders and suspenders was something suspending weight was supposed to be done from the shoulders. Most of the comments and inspiration where Ellen White talks about the suspending of weight from the shoulders was given to the women. It was not to the men. And it was given to the women because sisters were wearing dresses that weighed up to sometimes 10 pounds. I mean, it was very heavy dresses and they would wear it right around the waist and it was dragging the bowels. That's what she called it. So she would talk about how it's important to wear to suspend the weight from the shoulders. Well, there were some brothers who went kind of over with this and they saw, all right, we got to wear suspenders all the time. And then they made it a measuring point to another brother. And they would say, you know, hey, you know, if you're not wearing suspenders, you don't really understand God. You're not like walking with Jesus like like we're walking with him, you know, and they kind of would give this vibe. And I was just like, this is strange. I was like, so you're trying to tell me that you can tell you can you can get an indicator of my closeness to Jesus by whether I wear a belt or suspenders. And they was like, yep. And so I was like, OK, this is fanaticism, true and true. And so what ended up happening is I said, OK, so you're not supposed to suspend weight at all on your hips. Is that right? They said, yep, that's right. I said, OK. I took a pair of underwear. And it has some degree of weight to it. So do you suspend your underwear? <laughs> and that brother looked and smiled and he said, I suspend my underwear. And I was like, Ugh. he didn't get it. He didn't get it. Totally just went over. Fanaticism. So my family and I went to camp meetings and all sorts of stuff where we were always around fanaticism. So because we were around it, 
I would always come back home, my wife and I, and we talk with our children like, listen, you know, some of these things were extreme. I've seen extremism in diet. I've seen people that are almost down to skin and bones, but they call themselves health reformers. Their teeth are yellow. They, 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 their skin is flushed. Their eyes are dark. And it, it's, it's like, sister, brother, you're malnourished. Like, I'm serious. I'm like, you're malnourished and you're going to be very susceptible to disease if you don't get a better balance on your diet. So the problem in Seventh-day Adventism is that we are reformers, which is good, but we are most susceptible to extremes in reforms. And that is bad. And many a times we fall into that. There's extreme dress reform. There's extreme health reform. There's extreme even Sabbath reform. I was told I couldn't laugh on the Sabbath. (laughs) My first year in, I was laughing. (laughs) And literally somebody said, "Uh, excuse me, it is the Sabbath. You are not supposed to be laughing like that. And I'm, I'm brand new, coming out of the world. And I was like, man. And you know what? I was so hungry for God. I was so hungry for God that I actually said, well, I guess I got to learn how to not laugh on Saturdays. <laughs> like, in other words, I, I was so determined to still walk with God that even if it meant I got to train my mind to no longer laugh on a Friday sunset till Saturday sunset, so be it. <laughs> And boy, was it beautiful to just study the word for myself and to see that laughter, laughter, innocent laughter, not at the expense of others, but innocent laughter is a beautiful gift with lots of healing virtue Mm -hmm. that God allows to be done even on the Sabbath day. So we sought to bring our children up in balance, good, proper balance, avoiding fanaticism, etc. But what I still find is that it's still very difficult to keep our youth focused. And I see battle after battle after battle. And what I see today is I I still I still have four young people all with the same last name as mine that are still pursuing Jesus Christ. And for that, I say hallelujah and thank you, Jesus. But I also see where the devil has gotten in there and has infiltrated to some degree or another in the, 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 the spirit of degradation, bringing them down. Sometimes the mind gets a little bit more focused on that of the world rather than that of Christ. And so I find that I'm like, Lord, I need something. And you know what I need? To come up against all these powers, especially the, the most wicked power of social media. Social media is 99% wicked and 1% righteous. It's like you can only do but so much good on social media. And thank the Lord, there is good being done. But man, you are up against the devil on those things because he's infiltrated. It's his platform way more than God's. And so unless you have total temperance, it is very difficult to be on social media and maintain good, sharp, biblical focus and connection with Christ. You have to have good temperance, good self-control. Otherwise, you're going to get sucked in. And so I see some of these things happening. And what I've realized is, Lord, these beast powers, as me and Ivor Myers would talk about it, we say, man, this thing is a beast power. This is a new beast power. And sometimes we'll say, man, I don't have enough power against this. And you might be looking at areas in your life where you're seeing developments, things that's happening. Maybe it's not with your children. Maybe it's in you. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in some other area of your life. And you and I are at a place where we're realizing we're realizing we're coming up against some warfare, even if it's with ourselves. And we're realizing we need some serious power. And just merely knowing how to repeat Bible verses is not enough. Just merely knowing how to quote spirit of prophecy quotes, not enough. We need something that Jesus left for us as a secret. And I want to show it to you. Above all things, while Christ is our example, here's the thing that Jesus wanted to be our example that a lot of times we miss out on this family and we miss out on this to our own detriment. I lied to you not. I praise God for every class that's going on right now. But I promise you, this is the most important. I'm serious. This is the most important because if you don't have this, all of everything else going on means nothing. Inspiration says the Savior's life on earth was a life of communion with nature and with God. In this communion, he has noticed he revealed for who? For us. The what? The secret to a life of power. Family. I 
have been around this block called Seventh-day Adventism long enough that I've seen a lot of stuff. And there is something that I have found is a common thread. I've watched people who was in this church preaching and teaching, standing in places like where I'm standing. Today, they're in the world living in absolute open bona fide sin. Turned away from God, turned away from his truth for this time, turned away from everything. Three angels, the whole nine yards, left the whole church and didn't just leave this church and join another church. Typically, if you're a well-studied Seventh-day Adventist Christian, you're not going to leave here to become a Baptist. You're not going to leave here to become a Hebrew Israelite or a Muslim, even though that happens. By and large, when you leave this movement, we go full blown world. We just go straight to the world. Just no more religion. We just go straight to the world and live their religion, if you please. And so it is that what I've found for probably 99.9% of those that I knew personally that were once mighty warriors for the Lord and eventually turned away, male or female, I would ask them this one question. I would ask them, six months before you made the decision to leave the truth, to leave God, to leave the church and everything, Six months before that, what was your communion life like? What was your devotional life like? And do you know nearly 100% of them said the same thing? Weak, sporadic, very inconsistent, shallow, wasn't very deep and meaningful. And then eventually, they fell out. Brothers and sisters, go to John chapter 8. I want us to look at this verse, and, and I want us to consider this verse uh, very prayerfully and very carefully. When Jesus said this, you know, there's a way that I, I read this verse that it scares me a little bit. It, it really makes me careful. And I want you to see it. John 8. You'll remember that everybody was talking about their father, Abraham. You know, the children of Israel, they're like, oh, yeah, Abraham, our father, Abraham, our father, Abraham, our father. And they would talk all about this Abraham and father talk. Well, here it is that as they were talking about Abraham and the father, they, they, Jesus got to a place where he said, it, it, it's time for me to tell you who your, who your daddy really is. I'm going to tell you who your daddy is. And the Bible says in John 8 and verse 44, it says, you are of your father who? The devil. Now, watch the next point. He says, and the lusts of your father you might do. Is that what the verse says? The lusts of you. Thank you, sister. The love. He says, the lusts of your father, you will do it. You're going to do it. And he was a murderer from the beginning, et cetera, et cetera. And every time we do Satan's will, I guarantee you we're murdering somebody. His name is Jesus. Every time we sin, we crucify the son of God afresh. Hebrews 6, 6. And so what Jesus was trying to teach is if we don't have God as our father, then we can fall under Satan's adoption agency. And when we fall under Satan's adoption agency, you don't have a will to tell him no. Whatever your father wants, you're going to do it. And that's very deep to me. Whatever he wants, you're going to do it. Why? Because we have no power against him except God's power. Human will is not enough to resist Satan. James 4 and verse 7 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Then resist the devil and he will flee. Human will is not enough to resist Satan on your own. You can't, there's no way it's going to work. And so we're living in a time where God is trying to communicate to humanity the secret to the life of power because he wants us to understand there's something Jesus came to this earth to be our example. Something he says, I want you to learn how to do this. Do it like how I did it. You'll have the results I had as well. You will overcome as I overcame. What does it boil down to? Communion with God in nature. That's the secret to the life of power. And I don't know about you, but that's what we need is we need more power. I don't know if I need a whole lot more Bible verses. I'm not here to boast and make it sound like I've studied everything. I've studied a lot. I've studied a lot. Sometimes I go to my library and I see all those books and I'll look at a book like, hmm, that looks interesting. Let me take a look at that. I'll take the book thinking I'm getting ready to read something very exciting and I'll open it up and all I see is my handwriting, marks, everything. I forgot how much I've read. It's like I've read a lot. 
It's been 30 years. And I've been serious from the first moment I joined the church. Like serious. Never fell off. I, know, I don't have the testimony of I joined the church and then I kind of fell back into the darkness of the world and then I came back. That's not my story. I've joined this church and from the moment I joined till 30 years later, my fire is blazing. It doesn't mean I didn't have discouragement. It didn't mean that I did not sin. It doesn't mean I did not fall. But I don't have that testimony of joining the church, being on fire and then losing the fire somewhere in the mix and going down and all this. stuff. I just don't have that's not my testimony. So I'm talking about for 30 years, I've been in this thing. I've been reading and studying and praying and learning and more and experimenting. But God is still helping me to see still not enough. It's not enough. You can fill your brain up with a thousand texts. It's not enough. We need to enter into such a communion with God that he and us, we become one. And so it is. This is the secret of a life of power. Now, there's another secret. The other secret is the secret to failure. That was Ministry of Healing, page 51. You saw that. The secret to a life of power. Now, there's also a secret to failure, and I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about this. How can we fail in Christian work? Well, there's a quote in Christ Object Lessons that speaks very powerfully to this point. Here's the quote. It talks about a group of people maybe you can associate with. Let's take a look. They are working for others' good. Is there anybody in here that does that? You work for other people's good? Yep. It says their duties are pressing, their responsibilities are many, and they allow their labor to do something terrible. What happened? Let me tell you something. My wife and I are master road warriors. I could teach a class on it. My wife and I would drive all over the United States of America. We would fly. Sometimes we did nine countries in one year. We know what it is to live in a suitcase and the airplane was our second home and the car was our second home A or B. We, we know about that lifestyle. And I watch all these ministries doing the same thing. And, we, and here I am. I drag my children. I said, you know, praise the Lord. We homeschool. We homeschool on the road. And it's like, yeah, right. Most traveling families know you on the road too much. Your homeschooling gets compromised. Your homeschooling gets compromised. You, you're tired. First of all, you're a human. You're tired. You're up late, duplicating, printing, cooking, preparing. Da, da, da. You're trying, and you're trying very genuinely. Nobody's questioning how genuine you are. But that is a formula for disaster. Seriously, it's a formula for disaster. I'm just telling you. It's a formula for disaster. It has to stop. Because if you keep doing it, you're going to see the fruit one day. In the neglected ones. And this is what ended up happening. I, I'm thinking, man, we're doing all the will of the Lord. And we got so busy. The best thing you could do sometime was open up an Ellen White app and read a quick little one page of devotional. Well, praise God for that one page of devotional. It does help. It's better than nothing. But it's not enough to get us through these serious and trying times. We need something way more intimate with God. And so what happens is we allow our labor for other people's good to crowd out our devotional time. Now, here's what happens next. Communion with God through prayer and a study of his word is neglected. It says here is one of the chief secrets of failure in Christian work. Christ Object Lessons, page 52. Chief secret of failure in Christian work is doing all this good. To the point that it crowds out your own communion and devotional time with God. Your communion becomes weak. It becomes shallow. It becomes sporadic. It's all over the place. You don't have real focus. You only focus for the few seconds you're reading it. And when it's over, you're done. You almost forgot by midday what you even read in the morning. And that describes not just most Adventists. That, you know what? I don't know if that describes most Adventists. That describes the serious ones. But... This also deals with a lot of those who are working really hard for the master. And Satan knows that it's a death trap. He knows it's the thing that takes us down. There are examples of this in failing in Christian work where you got these stories. So, you know, you remember Mark 9, 17 through 19, where, you know, the disciples try to cast out the demons. The, de the, the boy possessed by the demon. And when they try to cast out the demon, you remember they couldn't cast him out. 
Do you remember what was the reason why they could not cast him out? They had been arguing amongst themselves. Okay, this is true. But there's something more direct that Jesus said. He said, some only come out by prayer and fasting. So what do you think they should be praying for? While they're denying themselves physical sustenance to receive more spiritual sustenance, what should they be praying for? They're fasting, but they got to pray. And they got to pray for something they evidently did not have. Power. Good. Open your Bible. Go to Mark chapter 9. I want you to watch what they were supposed to be praying for. All right. Mark chapter nine. And let's watch this. OK. As we watch Mark chapter nine, we're going to watch Jesus. He's going to he's going to help them see what they were lacking. It's very clear, actually. Mark nine. And now we're going to look at verses 17 through 19. It says in Mark nine, verse 17. And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. Notice what Jesus says in verse 19. This is what they need to be praying more for while they're fasting. He says in verse 19, he answer him and saith, O what? O faithless generation. Who do you think Jesus's comments was especially focusing on? His disciples. So what was the problem with his disciples? They were lacking. You get that? So when they spend that time in prayer and fasting, fasting, you're denying yourself physical sustenance. For some type of spiritual sustenance. But what are you praying for during that time? What's that spiritual thing you need that you're praying for? Lord, increase our That's it. That's what they needed. They tried to do God's work when they themselves wasn't even convinced about God's work. You know, any gospel workers like that? You know, it's a sad thing when we tell everybody else to live healthy and you're not. That's not even right. You're going to tell everybody else you got to be temperate, brothers and sisters. You got to control yourself. You can do it. And then our whole life is a life of intemperance. That's not cool. Not good. God says, slow down. Take a step back. Now, I love the fact that Jesus is not quick to condemn. Can you say amen to that? Oh, praise his name. (laughs) He just sits there so lovingly, doesn't he? And he just he watches us sometimes even in our failures. And he says, that's all right. And he, he just comes in. He's ready to just pick us back up again. Let's start all over again. Let me show you how. And then he begins to walk us through. Don't live a life of intemperance just to encourage and tell everybody else how temperate they must be and how they can do it. But by our actions, we testify we don't even believe our own message. This is the disciples. The disciples are ready to give messages that they themselves are not convinced of yet because of their own lives. Like my sister said, why are you guys fighting about who's the greatest? If you really trusted God, why would you be so caught up in all of that? And so one of the ways that we can fail in Christian work is when we get involved in the work, not even trusting and believing in the very one and the work that we're advocating to others. So may our hearts be convicted and may we believe what we are teaching and may our lives be more in harmony with what we're teaching so we can better impact the lives of others. Amen. All right. The second one is this story that was very interesting. Acts 19. We can't read all these verses because I want to get to more of the meat of our time. In Acts 19, we have the story of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, individuals, the sons of Sceva. And in that story, we got the sons of Sceva and those sons of Sceva are trying to cast out demons. And they came to one filled with demons and said, in the name of Jesus and in the name of Paul, I command you to come out. The demon respond, Jesus, we know. Paul, we know. Who are you? We don't know you. That is a terrible thing for a demon to say to a gospel worker. That is very frightening. I pray to God I never have such a case. But here it is that when they said that, the Bible says they were taken over. Now, my mind kept saying, What in the verse indicated 
where their lack of power was. Because the lack of power in the story of Mark 9 was evident. You know, oh, faithless generation. You had no faith, you had no power. Faith is the victory. So if you have no faith, you don't have any power. That's why you, were, you couldn't cast out the demon. In this story, however, what was the issue? What do you think? Yes. No fruit. Okay. Did not demonstrate fruit. Good. Anything else? What do you think? Yes. They wanted to do it for, to make themselves look good. Ah, they wanted to do it to make themselves look good. Doing good work with selfish motives. Very good observation. Anything else? Evidently, they did not really know Christ because if they really knew him, that demon should have given a different response. I agree. One more. Very active group on my left. What's happening on the right? What do you say? Anyone? Why do you think these guys, these Jews, could not cast out the demons? Anything else? All right. Back to the left. Yes. It wasn't their faith. It wasn't their faith. They didn't have enough faith? It wasn't like, well, they didn't have enough faith, but it wasn't their faith. It was the faith that Paul preached about. Okay. 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 I see your point. So, in other words, it, it seemed evident that they did not have enough faith. They were trying to go on the faith of Paul. And on the faith of Jesus, but maybe there was a question mark on their confidence, right? I think that's a very good observation. My brother, did you have your hand up as well? Yeah, I was just noticing it says it's kind of like they took it upon themselves versus maybe being called to that one. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's a very good point as well. Let's go ahead and round it off like this. What, what really triggered my mind was the word vagabond. What, what, what's the word we see here for that word vagabond? To vacillate. What does it mean to vacillate? When somebody's vacillating. It's kind of like double-minded. You're not settled. You're not sure yet. You're experimenting, but you're not convicted yourself. This is why that statement you made about Paul, in the name of Paul and Jesus. I'm not convinced in and of myself, but for Paul's sake and for Jesus' sake, we say come out. And that demon responded very appropriately. Listen, Jesus, we know Paul, we know. If they were talking to us, this would be a whole different experience. But because you're talking to us and you're still living a vacillating lifestyle, you're not settled in Christ. You don't even fully believe. As a result of that, we're going to show you what happens. And then the demons leaped on them. You follow that? This is how we can enter Christian work, but fail. We don't have power. And we should not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation. So God wants us to be bubbling over with power. So there's no question he wants us to have power. Now let's talk about how to get it. Again, Jesus is our example. Again, focus on the quote. Remember, the Savior's life on earth was a life of communion with nature and with God. In this communion, he revealed for us the secret to a life of power. I made mention of this earlier morning in the study, and now what I want to do is I want to talk about it. Why nature? Like, why did he choose nature? Why was nature such a priority? Now, before you answer that, like I said, I don't know if some of you can relate to this, but I know there's a lot of people who do. How many of you in this room right now have country homes? You've got a home in the country. That's a good number of you. Praise the Lord. Okay, wonderful. Tell me if you notice this happening. You, you make all this effort to get out of the city, to get into the country. You finally get into the country. When you are in the country, do you find yourself frequently indoors rather than outdoors Spending time with God, learning about God through nature. There's a lot of us that are not getting that experience in. We're in the country. We're, 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 we finally made it. You know, we got our property. But sadly, we are not at the place where we're actually enjoying and receiving all of what God reserved in the country for us. We make painstaking effort to beautify the house. And some of our land looks like survival camps. <laughs> Seriously, I, I've been in certain houses. It's like these people are ready for the bombs. They're, they're ready for the grenades. 
You know, it's like it looks like a survival camp. We're told an inspiration that precious little book Advent is home. We're told that our home should be to our children the most beautiful place on earth. Like when they come to our little country retreats, they should say, man, mommy, do we have to leave here? Like that's the kind of that's the kind of impact, you know, you want to have with your with your house is that mommy. I just whew. you don't want them looking at the great edifices in the city and being like, wow, man, I can't wait to get rich enough so I can get one of those. You want them to be able to look at those houses and say, hmm, that's nice. But if only they knew what we have, that beautiful, beautiful scene of nature. Right. So what ends up happening is we often will get out into the country, but we don't get to enjoy the country. We don't get to enjoy the land. We don't get to enjoy the scenes of nature. So what's one of the ways that Christ has helped us with this? He says, listen, when you have your communion time with me, I want you to get out. Watch my words. As much as it is practical and possible, we should have our communion with God in nature. Now, somebody break down for me. Why did I use the word practical and possible? Give me an example of when it's impractical to have communion with God in nature. Yes. Negative 12 degrees and four feet of snow. I actually got you. I used to live in Windsor, Massachusetts in the mountains, and literally it got to negative 31. Can you imagine going out? You'd be like, in the beginning was the word. I mean, you, you just freeze. It's like you wouldn't even be able to finish the verse. You're done. <laughs> do you understand that? So sometimes you just can't do it. You know, it's impractical. Thank you. Cold and raining. Cold and raining. What if there's a tornado watch? <laughs> you know, it's like, nope, the Lord had worship in nature. I'm going outside. You see cows and everything spinning in circles and you're going to go outside and have worship anyhow. So obviously there's times where it's impractical. Make sense? Yes. <laughs> so my dear brother said he's out there in Kansas and he chases tornadoes. But you wouldn't do that during devotion. <laughs> right. OK. So but yeah, I mean, again, impractical sister, you had your hand up in the back. Exactly. Precisely. So inclement weather. Yes. Sure. Sure. You can do that. Maybe your morning manna or your morning devotional time. Maybe that may not be the best time, but you definitely can do that for sure. And you can get an object lesson out of a lot of things. So no question about it. The key is, is that there are times that it can be impractical. So first and foremost, we should prioritize having communion with God in nature as long as it is practical. What about possible? You can't have communion in nature if you're on a plane. Perfect example. That's a perfect example. You can stare out the window. But, you know, that's but so much. But I have been in awe on an airplane. There's sometimes it's those of us who fly. There's sometimes you can see the beautiful paintwork of God and you're just like, oh, OK, now I want to have worship. So sometimes looking even out the window. So I'm you know, I'm not minimizing that. But, yeah, practically speaking on an airplane. No, not going to work. Uh, what about if you live in Brooklyn? Or certain parts of Los Angeles or other places where it's such a deep inner city environment. I'm not joking. Like the best you got is like a little thing of grass mingled with dog feces. You know, it's like that's that's about all you have. And so, again, the idea is, is that there's sometimes where it's not possible. And so what we don't want to do is we don't want to make people feel bad if they cannot do it because they're just not in an environment yet. They could still have communion with God. There'll be some challenges connected to it, but they can still have communion with God, too. I always want to let people know who live in the cities like, look, your situation is not hopeless. It's harder, but not hopeless. There's a difference. It's harder, but it's not hopeless. Yes. Right. Exactly. You know, like Daniel in Babylon. Good example. So, again, the key is, is number one. As much as is practical and possible, we should go out in nature. 
Let's add a couple of verses to this. Mark 1, 35. I need a reader for that. Mark 1 and verse 35. Mark 1 and verse 35. Let's go ahead and do it. Once you find it, go ahead and read it. Mark chapter 1 and verse 35. Amen. So notice he gets up and he goes to a solitary private place and then he prays. So wherever you go in nature, where what should be the environment? It should be what? Solitary, Solitary, private, nobody else around. Okay, this is your one on one time with God. Another example is Luke 6, 12. Let's go ahead and look at that one super quick. Luke 6 and verse 12. Somebody read that for us once you find it. Amen. So this was not just something he did early in the morning, but there was times that he went out into the wilderness and he stayed through the night. Now, I understand some of us that may be a little scary. That might be a little challenging for us. God will build you up to this place that you will sense the angel, the presence of angels around you so much that you will begin to boldly go even into your own properties, woods or whatever, and just get some private time with God, trusting that you're okay. Nothing wrong with having a little bear spray by your side. (laughs) Nothing wrong with having a little mosquito pod. I bought one. I mean, again, I'm, you know, I think it's all right. I, I think I'm still, I think it's still legit country living to have a mosquito pod. I just think I'm smart. (laughs) You know, if you know you live in an area laden with mosquitoes, why are you going to be like, nope, to connect with nature, bite me. And and you're just going to let them bite you while you're praying. It's like that to me doesn't make sense. So what I say is get a little mosquito pod. They're very inexpensive. They fold and open. You can unzip the thing, go in there, zip it. And then you go on your knees and the mosquitoes are trying to get in and they can't. And you can have worship and, and enjoy the Lord. So even if you go out at night. You can get some of these little gadgets or whatever to just make the experience more beautiful. It's all right. You don't have to connect with nature so much that, nope, let the mosquitoes bite us as part of nature. It's like, no, man, you can get a disease. So let's talk about it. You have found your solitary place. And that's what I always like to tell people. Pick your spot. Even here. Even here. While you're here, pick your spot. Go find a place maybe that you can say, you know what? Tomorrow morning, or maybe tonight, I'm going to find a little spot that I'm going to just get some time. Just me and God. Pick your spot. When I, use, when I go to meet ministry, I'm one, of the, I'm one of the teachers there. When I go there, I always tell the students, pick your spot. You're going to be here for the next four months. Go pick your spot on the grounds and find your place for communion with God. So that's what you can do when you get your property. Find your little solitary place, and you make that your spot, and you begin to have your time with God. What are some of the things that we can learn from nature? Like, why do you think Jesus prioritized having it in nature versus inside of some type of building, structure, or anything like that? Why? Nature proves that God is real. Amen. How does nature do that? Or uh, did I see a hand here? Go ahead. Yes. Correct. Correct. Do you remember earlier this morning when we did our devotional time um, and we talked about Psalm, the eighth division? Remember, we looked at that and we saw how the mind of the psalmist was the more that he studied creation is the more it prompted him to worship and praise God. Did you remember seeing that for those of us who read Psalm eight? It's like you see that. And if you haven't read it yet, go read it. You'll literally watch the psalmist do that. The more that he's surrounded in those scenes of nature. It was like it, it caused him even the more to say, how excellent is your name in all the earth? And he would begin to praise God. So Jesus, when he was in nature, he would constantly take his surroundings and let it connect back and speak to him as he was contemplating the things of God. So let's use some examples of this. So you know that we have the evergreen tree. One of the things we love about the evergreen tree is that it's what? It's unchanging, regardless of the weather, regardless of the storms and what have you. The evergreen tree remains green. Now, we know there are exceptions to this because sometimes we have some pretty severe weather. But the bottom line is, is generally speaking, an evergreen is called that because it always stays green. 
Every time you're out in nature having communion with God and you behold that evergreen tree, we learn two lessons. Number one, we learn the lesson that I am the Lord and I change not. And you know when this truth becomes good, really special to us? When you got people in your life that you really cared about and you really trusted and they changed on you. When you go through that type of hurt and disappointment because one time they were acting like your friend and then all of a sudden they became your enemy. One time you thought you could trust them. You find out now you can't trust them. Your heart's broken. You're disappointed. But then you go outside and have communion with God with your broken heart. And as you get there in nature and you're able to look at those evergreens and God can remind us, remember, they may change, but I don't change. And it increases our faith. It prompts us to put our trust more in him than in the arms and the arms of flesh. You understand that? Nature helps us to get a better focus of who God is as a person. But then after that, it also shows us who we must be. When you and I have communion with God in nature, brothers and sisters, God is saying, listen, as you behold the scenes of nature, associate it back to his character. And then from that, reflect on what you must be and what I must be. It strengthens the reading of the scripture. You know the whole reason why we use PowerPoints? For those of us who are teachers of the word, you know the reason why we use PowerPoints? To deepen the, to deepen the impression. Could I, not just had, could I not just have you pick up Bible verses and read all of this? But I deepen the impression by not only having you read it, but also having you see it. Are you following that? This is how we teach children. You, you, you know, you use you do multi-sensory education. You try to teach as much as possible. Use the senses. Let them see it. Let them smell it. Let them taste it. Let them touch it. It's going to stick better. You follow that? So when God says, I want you to prioritize having your communion with me in nature. Why? Because the more that we see it, the more that we smell it, the more that we touch it and hear it, and hear it, it crystallizes in the mind a whole lot easier. And that's the reason why inspiration says it is 10 times harder. Again, it is not that it's impossible, but it's 10 times harder for youth who grow up in the cities to develop that Christian character and comprehend the things of God. It's not impossible, but it's way harder. And the antithesis is true. It is a whole lot easier when we are out in nature. And that's, that should be our focus. When you, when you prioritize getting your country retreat, don't let your focus be, man, I got to avoid the beast power. It's like, yeah, that's true. I mean, that's true. But there's different ways we avoid the beast power. He who you know, abides under the shadow of the wings of the almighty. That's the number one way you avoid the beast power. You understand that? Even if they know your address, I got all these, I got all these P.O. boxes. You know, you talk to all these country living folks. Hey, what's your address? I want to send you something. Oh, well, P.O. box. You know, and, and P.O. boxes are not wrong. But sometimes we get the P.O. box because we're saying, just in case you apostatize, I don't want you to know where I live. I told you I grew. I've been around a lot of fanatics. Now we don't know. I, I went to a country living meeting where they literally said, put bushes in front of the entry of your driveway. They were instructing people like this in the class. They said, put bushes in front of the entrance of your driveway to make it look like the property's unoccupied. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I said, what kind of craziness is this? Right. Because in my mind, it's as simple as this. The devil is a spirit. Is that right? So you can hide under the ground. He knows you're there. Then what he can do is possess the mind of somebody and say, go down the road, turn left, turn right. And there they are hiding behind the bush. Are you following? So the answer is not I get country homes or I move out of the city into the country because my desire is I need to hide from the beast power. I'm not reading that in inspiration. What God does let us know is that one day. The enemies came to Lot's door. And I'm not saying Lot was living in the best environment. He should have took his uncle's first recommendation. Don't get me wrong. But even when he made a bad decision, 
the, de the people who were controlled by demons came to the man's house. And angels, as it were, said, Lot, we got this. And those angels came out there and the angels whoop, blinded their eyes right in front of the house. And all they had to do was just kind of eventually go away. So God will protect us even if the beast power shows up at your door. Are you following that? That's not our number one motif. The reason we get out of the city into the country is to learn better the lessons of faith. When we get out there, oh man, my country retreat, it's like I'm going to have some sweet communion with my Savior. I'm going to get to know him. I love this. This is, this is, this is my favorite quote uh, of all the writings of Ellen White, and it happens to be the, the explanation of victory over sin. Desire of Ages, page 668. When we know God as it is our privilege to know him, our lives will be a life of continual obedience through an appreciation of the character of Christ and through communion with God, sin will become hateful to us, end quote. So this is actually preparation for victory over sin because you're communing with God. You're learning and studying his character and he's using multi-sensors to get the point across to us. We are benefited greatly when we prioritize getting out of the house as much as is practical and possible and get that communion with God because let's face it, family, we're all still a little bit hard-headed. And we need all the help we can get to get the point across of what God is trying to teach. It's not just the evergreen tree. You remember there was the mountain and hills. They represented places of safety, places of safety, right? You remember the Bible says, oops, forgive me, a little too trigger happy. Yeah, there we go. There we are. I will lift up mine eyes unto where? The hills from whence comes what? My help comes from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. Every time we get outside and we behold those hills, if you have hills that your house is surrounded by, every time you behold those hills, God says, I want you to remember those hills are symbolic of places that help people in their time of trouble, that helps people in their time of need. I am always that cleft that you can come to. You can come to the rock that is higher than you and you can hide yourself under the shadow of my wing and I will protect you. So those help for those moments where sometimes we're battling with fears. We're battling with the cares of the world. We're scared and we have anxiety. We don't know what's going to happen next and what's going to get us or what's not going to try to get my children. But here goes God in nature reminding us every time you see those hills. God says, I want you to remember. That's where you're going to get help. That's where I will secure you. And that's where I will keep you. And I love it because as you heard in my prayer, the blessing is in the doing of this. Don't just know it. You got to do it. It's called experimental religion. Experimental religion. Let's continue with another one. Rocks. Rocks were considered fortress and strength. Right. You'll remember that the Bible says in the book of Second Samuel 22. And he said, the Lord is my rock. And my fortress and my deliverer. Once again, similar to the hills, the rocks are God's fortress. And that is how he delivers us from the destroyer. All throughout nature, God wants us to always look at nature and associate it with something about his character. So let's take these last few moments of our class and let's go ahead and let's talk about this. I'm going to throw something out. I want you to talk to me. Tell me what can I learn about God through that? All right. Number one, grass. Somebody, what would you say? That's something easy to see even in suburban homes, right? Grass. I'm not talking about marijuana. Regular lawn grass. Aha. So if, okay. So when you see the grass, that's a way that you can associate how God lasts forever. I can put my trust in him. He's never going to leave me nor forsake me. 
Beautiful. Yes. Ooh, nice. Like the grass soaks up the dew in the morning. So we in the morning should soak up the word of God. That's beautiful. All right. Another one. Let's go. Sticks. Sticks and. (laughs) Sticks and stones may break my bones. All right. What would you say? Sticks. That's that's something you're going to see a lot on your property. Yes. Did you have one, sis? Right. Okay. Okay. So I can look at the sticks laying on the ground that's becoming brittle and withering. I could look at that as a warning and also remember, stay connected to the vine so that way you don't wither like the stick. Okay. Yes. Nice. That is beautiful. Okay. So my brother said, you know, when a stick is by itself, it's easy to break. But the more that sticks are bundled together, it becomes a lot harder to break. So it can be in our lives of why we should press together and continue to work together. Man, that's fantastic. Again, what are we doing? We're not only taking ideas that we can definitely experience in the country, but can some of these things we experience even in the suburbs? Sure we can, right? Can some of these things possibly even be experienced in inner city, especially the sticks? Definitely. All right. Good. Let's do another one. Oh, did somebody else have their hand up for sticks? All right. Let's do another one. Um, Leaves. Yes. When they fall off the tree, they are no longer of use. Okay. Now, again, We're trying to uplift our hearts, right? So if I see a bunch of trees off the ground, they're no longer of use. I don't want to look at that tree and say, or those leaves and say, well, uh, maybe I'm no longer of use. Maybe I'm a, maybe I'm a fallen leaf. You know, like you don't want the person to interpret that. So what what we're trying to do is see what can we learn from the leaves that encourages us or builds us up. So you could take that same scenario, but add something to it. And I can help you with that if you need some help. Okay, stay connected to that tree. And that way, life continues to flow. You got it. Beautiful. Positive. Love it. Yes, my brother. Spread the word of God like the leaves of autumn. Yes, spread the word. So when we see the leaves on the ground, we see our mission. Spread the word of God like the leaves of autumn. Yes, and then yes. That's right. Amen. You know, I'm going to build on that. You know, the same way that the leaves, when they fall on the ground, they decompose and then they begin to nourish the soil to produce something greater at a later time. So it is that we should die to self. So that way, as we die to self, God can work through us now that we can bear even greater fruit to his name's honor and glory. These are the things that we want to consider. But I also want to remember the fall season, which happens in inner city suburbs and the country in the fall season one of the things i love is that when those colors change that's an indication that those leaves are dying they're going through a dying process but they're so beautiful you ever read in psalms where it says uh beautiful are the death of his saints you know what i'm saying even when individuals pass away they are still though they may be sleeping their works can still follow them and bless others And while we may mourn, God says it's beautiful because another soul sealed for eternity. There are many ways that we can take the grim and the bad and the ugly. And through nature, we can learn things about God. We'll take this last comment. And so like when they were killing all the martyrs, they were having trouble because the martyrs were so dense in Christ that it that's right. And the more martyr, martyrs they killed, the more Christians they had. Amen, my sister. You see, God wants us to understand, beloved, 
that there's a beauty in having communion with him in nature. And what I want to encourage us to do is to make it our priority because our power comes from our loyalty, our faithfulness, our fidelity to God. The more that we are loyal to him, we become lost in him. And as a result of that, all the things that happens on the outside become of lesser consequence to us. As long as I'm in him, whatever his will may be, so let it be done. My hope and my prayer for each and every one of us is that we will understand that the Savior's life on earth was a life of communion with nature and with God. And in this communion, he revealed for us the secret to a life of power. May we have such a sweet communion with God that our love and our devotion for him will be deeper. And maybe by the grace of God, we'll be counted amongst those patient saints at last during the final scenes of earth's history that keep the commandments of God because our love was so deep for him, because our communion was so sweet with him. This is my prayer for each and every one of us. Do we understand the study? Will we make it a greater priority to have uninterrupted communion with God in nature like Christ did it? Is that our, is that, are we willing to do that? Amen? Amen? Praise God. Then let's have a word of prayer on that. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for our time together. We thank you, Lord, so much for teaching us these lessons. There's a whole lot more we could have gone over, but time does not permit. May you bless us just to hold to these few gems that we study today, put it into faithful practice, and realize the great blessings of heaven, for truly the blessing is in the doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, family, God bless you all. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.